We'll go to Matthew chapter 7 for our scripture text. First five verses, I believe, possibly six. Uh, then we'll pray and we'll get into the Bible study uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, a very famous verse. Most of you have probably not read past that because the devil seems to only emphasize the first verse and not the entire passage. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. Why do you pay so much attention to the splinter that your brother happens to have in his eye and you ignore the two by four that's in your own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, here, let me pull that two by four out of, or that splinter out of thine eye, and behold, a two by four is in mine own eye. You're being a hypocrite. First, examine yourself and take the two by four out of your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly and help your brother with the splinter in his eye. The title of today's message is this, Fruit Inspectors. Well, Jesus is preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount, where we find our text here in Matthew 7. And he's addressed several errors of Pharisaical tradition, and he's shined the truth of God's Word on those traditional errors. Now, at the time of Jesus, there were a number of different Jewish denominations. I'll call them denominations. There were about 24 sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Judaism that actually operated under the umbrella of orthodoxy there in Israel. But there were two of them in particular that we are very familiar with that we hear all the time, especially as we go throughout the Gospels. One is called the Pharisees, and the other is called the Sadducees. Now, generally, if we were going to try to compare them to modern day, the Sadducees would be much like a Reformed Jew that goes to temple. That person would be uh, less conservative in his nature. The, uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the afterlife. So some unusual beliefs. However, they were one of the dominant denominations of Judaism at this point in time. And then, of course, the other group we're probably more familiar with, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were doctrinally solid. And quite frankly, they had a, 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 a good reason for existence to begin with. When we go back and we look at Jewish history, after the Jews had begun returning to the Promised Land 70 years after they'd gone into captivity, we know that 50 or 60 years later, there was a priest named Ezra that came back and led in a great spiritual revival among those that had already returned to the land. And it was from Ezra that we had the roots of what we call uh, Hasidism, uh, the pious ones, or the the Pharisaical uh, movement. They wanted to make sure that Israel never fell into idolatry again and therefore that Israel never faced God's judgment again. So the Pharisees were very strict adherents to the law. Now, we know of many Pharisees that are mentioned in Scripture. Of course, Saul of Tarsus, we know he said himself was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Gamaliel, uh, Saul's teacher, uh, as a young man growing up, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, as identified as a Pharisee. Of course, in John 3, we're introduced to another prominent leader of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a member of the, the Pharisee denomination. In fact, several of Jesus' disciples, except for maybe the one zealot, uh, were all Pharisee by their, uh, bapti- by their membership. Uh, like we would be Baptist in our day and age. But, uh, in fact, it's likely uh, that Jesus was a Pharisee as far as the orthodoxy of what he, as his spiritual beliefs were in practice. Then, the Pharisees, having a valid reason for existence, wanting to make sure that the Jews stayed pure and according to doctrine, but, but sadly, like so many of us in Christianity we can quickly slide from a desire to be holy into a system of legalism. And that's quite frankly easier, I think, for us in our nature. We have a tendency of systematizing what is now holy versus what is unholy. Now, here's where that affected the Pharisees. Uh, as they were trying to make sure that the Jews stayed true to God's word. Let me give you one example. It says, remember, the law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, That's rather important, but it's not defined as to how you were to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Now, we know the spirit of the intent was, hey, folks, you need a day off. Don't work yourself to death. Take a day. You, your animals, your, your co-workers, your employees, everybody has a day of rest. Don't defy the Lord by willful disobedience. You need this. However, the Pharisees took it upon themselves to actually itemize what it meant to not work. So, for example, they had actually defined what a Sabbath day's journey is. And they had come to the conclusion, based upon certain texts, that you could walk 2,000 meters or about three-quarters of a mile on the Sabbath day without breaking the law. Now, again, that specificity was a tradition of men. It was not a doctrine of the Word of God. In fact, even today, among Orthodox Jewish communities, they have all sorts of rules and regulations that they have to keep. For example, in the modern keeping of Shabbat or the Sabbath day, uh, if you are in a Jewish community, or if we ever have the joy of going back to Israel again, if you're in an Israeli hotel on Shabbat, you will find that many Orthodox Jews that can afford it will take a one-day vacation. I mean, they will literally move into a hotel uh, for one day, and that way Arab or Gentile waiters and workers will wait on them so they don't have to work and cook the food or work and clean up. That's how they make sure that they don't work. Now, here's what's funny. They have what's called Shabbat elevators, where if there's a, a central bank of elevators in a hotel, of course, Gentiles are there as well, they will have at least one or two that are set for Shabbat. What's that mean? That means that every elevator, these elevators will open automatically on every floor for about 30 seconds, then close, go up the next floor, open, then close, go up the next floor, open. That way you could ride the elevator yet not work by pushing the button. And that's considered kosher. So that's an example. First time I went to Israel, I was, uh, we were over there during the Lebanese War. This was back in like 2006, I think. And uh, Itamar was our guide, and Itamar happened to be my, my roommate. So the two of us were sharing a room. There were about seven or eight of us as, as, as preachers, plus our guide, Itamar. And uh, it was the Sabbath, and I walked into our restroom, and it looked like we had some feminine napkins or something I don't know why they call them a napkin, but feminine products on, our, on the back of our toilet. And I'm like, huh, I hadn't seen those before. I said, Itamar, what is this on the back of our toilet? I mean, you're a man, I'm a man, we don't exactly need this sort of thing. He said, no, this is, this is toilet paper for the Sabbath. And it's already pre-measured in length. I'm dead serious, I'm dead serious. So you don't have to work to tear it. And that qualifies. Now, my first question is, this is a sealed bag. Is it okay to rip it open? But that's what I mean. I mean, the Jews have taken it to the nth degree as far as systematizing what they considered holiness to me. The reality is that the Sabbath wasn't to be a curse on man. But the Sabbath was a gift that God gave to man, knowing that we would, in all practical purposes, if left alone, would wind up working ourselves to death. We'd work seven days a week. We'd work our employees to death. We'd eventually burn ourselves out or wear out. And that was the purpose of the Sabbath. It was not meant to be some uh, system to inconvenience or trouble man. It was actually a gift that was given to mankind. And the, 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 the purpose of it was to intentionally take a day off and rest your mind. Now, let me ask you, do you think that God meant that if your house was on fire, you couldn't grab a fire hose and try to put the fire out if it happened to be on the Sabbath? No, that's not what he meant. Do you think that God meant as Jesus even addressed the Pharisees in the Gospels, if your donkey fell into the ditch... You don't have to wait the next day to drag the donkey out of the ditch. If, like on October the 7th, when the Jews were attacked on a high Sabbath, it was well within themselves to defend their families to every extent they needed to go to. Uh, that was not breaking the Sabbath. The idea is follow God's instructions. You need one day off out of seven. Make sure you honor the Lord by resting on the Sabbath day. If there happens to be an emergency, if there happens to be a flood, then you've got to deal with that. If it happens to be your house on fire or anything else, then obviously you've got to deal with that. But man has a desire for legalism. I think part of the reason is so we can brag to one another. 
In fact, it's, it's much easier rather than just say, honor the Lord, to come up with a system of do's or don'ts. And then knowing man's sinful nature, once we've established that system of do's or don'ts, we want to push it to the limit, see how far we can go getting away with it without going over the line. Folks, legalism is not Christianity. Christianity is I love Jesus. Everything I do, I want to glorify Jesus. Now, be careful with legalism in a church. And the Bible talks, now this is not the message. We're going to get back to the message in just a moment. But I just want to give some warning. We do want to be aware of things that are going on in our brothers or sisters' life. And we, if we see and we think a brother is, is having a difficult time or starting to stumble, then I do want to take him out to lunch and visit with him heart to heart in confidence to find out if there's something going on that we may, may be able to, to help them with. That is important. However, just as I said last week, the majority of the world, if we would live under this idea of taking care of your own business and stop meddling in others, we would be better off. Imagine if every person was focused on walking as close to God as they could every day that they're alive, and that every mom and dad were focused on raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and loving each other as we're supposed to as husbands and wife. Imagine if every individual was had proper self-government in fear of the Lord. Every family was operating under proper family government in fear of the Lord. Families that come together in a congregation that we call a local church body, we came together in the nurture and admonition and fear of the Lord and reverence of the Lord. Imagine how much easier life would be if we all just fundamentally took care of our own business. And we aren't supposed to stay out of each other's lives to every degree. We are supposed to be there to help one another. We've got two or three families in our church right now that we are having to walk through with in a real difficult financial time, uh, get them through a, a tough stage of life. And that's what the church is for. Now, again, you don't know about any of it because of, of, of them. It's not nobody else's business. Part of the church family, the church family, we take, come together and take care of each other. However, be very careful that you don't establish a set of righteousness that you have made up with that you start holding everybody else to. And here's what I mean by that. We have a tendency, if we're not careful as Christians, to say, well, brother so-and-so lives in that house. You know, that, that's, that's really more house than any Christian should need. In fact, I think that's a little bit ostentatious now. Now, my house is the perfect size for the perfect Christian. Not too much, not too little. In fact, we really, if we, if we didn't have so many kids, we'd need, our house is perfect. Okay? Well, brother so-and-so, well, he's done well in business, but you know what? That's really, he really shouldn't be driving around in a car like that. I think he gives the wrong message. Now, the car that I drive is just right. It's a new enough model and everything else, but, but the car that you drive, folks, I have heard so many strange things growing up independent Baptist. I, I heard one, we had one evangelist in here one time that had not been allowed to present in a sister church uh, because as they got there, the pastor saw that he was wearing wire-rimmed glasses and said, that's the John Lennon look, you can't preach in our church. I'm serious. We Christians are amazing at the depths that we can go to for legalism. Actually, I think Benjamin Franklin had wire rim glasses a long time before John Lennon did. But anyway, that was, that was the basis of it. We have a tendency of rather than saying that we are to dress modestly to where we define what modesty is. Well, her dress should have been an inch longer. It was below her knees, but it wasn't enough below her knees. Now, my wife's dress, on the other hand, is perfect. It's exactly, in fact, I measure it, three inches below her knees and everything else. Folks, be careful that we don't fall into that trap of pharisaicalism, of piety, where we measure everything by a standard that we ourselves have created. And by the way, I would say Romans 14 gives us a whole lot of latitude. You know, there are some things that are clearly black and white. And then there are some things that the Bible says, like remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, but it doesn't, say, it doesn't define what that means exactly. Well, then we are to, with prayer and conviction and Bible study and God's conscience, live that out and honor the Lord in the way that we do it. But we don't have a, a set measurement. There are things that you may be... I, one, one of the best illustrations I, I saw was, how many of you ever lived, listened to J. Vernon McGee through the Bible radio? 
Dr. McGee's on, I think, still at noon every day on Christian radio. He's been on the, across the country for, for since the 1970s. But Dr. McGee shared an illustration. He, again, he's one of the commentators that I enjoy because I love his simplicity and, and, and down-home uh, kindness. But he was talking about cultural mores. He was talking about being a pastor in Tennessee versus being a pastor in California, and he was in both places. If you were in Tennessee, he said, it was, it was not unusual to have, be at a deacon's meeting and have every deacon smoking a cigarette. However, you would never see boys and girls in the same swimming pool in Tennessee. That was their cultural moray. Cigarette smoking is okay even for men. However, we don't believe in mixed bathing. You know, you go to California when he moved out to Los Angeles, and there they lived right by the beach, Pacific Ocean. So with their church in California, it was perfectly normal to see boys and girls surfing or at the beach. However, if you brought a cigarette into some place, that was considered uh, 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 sinful and evil. So what I'm saying is here is where God has clearly spoken we need to pay absolute attention to. And on some other things that aren't specifically designed or defined, we have got a little bit of latitude. Now, here's the thing in all this. Don't be a stumbling block. I had a a, a friend, a tour guide that would uh, travel with us in Israel. Um, His name was Isaac. Isaac came over and was making a tour of America about four or five years ago. We had him in here at the church one day uh, doing a little special presentation. And I took uh, Isaac to uh, dinner or to lunch afterwards. We went to Hideaway Pizza. And, of course, I am a Gentile and I am a Christian. But I was aware that Isaac was a Jew and a practicing Jew. So when we got to Hideaway, I asked him, Isaac, is there anything uh, that would be particularly offensive to have on a pizza? Now, I don't keep kosher. In fact, as I read Acts 15, I'm not required to keep kosher. That was something that God established with Jewish people. But as far as me being a Gentile, I'm not, I, I don't have that requirement. However, Jews' conscience, they have been taught that you cannot mix meat and cheese. And that's part of their conviction. So I asked Isaac, Isaac, what can I order that wouldn't offend you? And we made some orders that everybody at the table can enjoy. What does that mean? I did not want, I have not, Isaac has not come to Christ yet. We've had a lot of great conversations. Boy, he's been, we've been provoked. He knows a lot. He knows enough to be saved. However, I didn't want to be a stumbling block by ordering a pepperoni pizza with a friend that happened to be an Orthodox Jew that that would offend. So again, the, the, the fundamental truth that we've got to remember in our walk is we don't want to be a stumbling block to other people, but we do have a great deal of latitude in how we live our lives that honor God. And when things aren't spoken, then don't try to carve it into law. Folks, we have issues. We had an issue here one time when we had some people in our church that, that believed in cloth diapers. You know what? I, care. I don't care. I am so glad that we had disposable diapers when we had kids. I cannot imagine the misery of having to deal with cloth diapers. But this person was passionate about how important it was to use cloth diapers. You know what? I don't see that in Scripture. Okay? Now, if that's important to you and you are convicted that you want to use cloth diapers, by all means, put one on your butt, one on your head. Don't care. Doesn't affect me in any way. But don't let that be something that you're measuring the spirituality of other people in the church with. You see what I'm saying? And that can, a lot of things. You know, we have holiday uh, debates, even in our church. And, and here's my saying. If, if trick-or-treat night offends you, then don't turn your light on. Don't hand that candy. But, you know, I grew up in a very staid, a very conservative, independent Baptist household. And me growing up in the, in the 1960s, it was just a, a night where we got to run around with a, a, a paper sack from Safeway and come home with a bunch of candy. Mom and dad didn't care. So consequently, since I grew up in that kind of home, it's never been a big deal for me. However, if you have a conviction that say, wait a second, this has an evil root to it, then by all means, you should not participate in it because your conviction says no. 
If we have someone else in the church that says, you know what, we're going to take advantage of kids coming and knocking on our door, and we're going to put a gospel track and an invitation to a Awana ministry along with a nice big Snickers bars in there, so when they look at that material, they'll have a good memory about that Christian man down the street, and Blair's not the grumpy old person that turns his lights out and cusses at the kids on trick-or-treat night. That's not the kind of reputation you want. Have I made that point well enough? Okay, okay. So the Pharisees were doctrinally okay, but in practice, they created a systematic list of legalistic standards, while at the same time created loopholes for their own particular sinful weak spots. And as the Sermon on the Mount covers, Jesus had gone over a lot of these many relevant and controversial topics to the Jewish community in their day. For example, divorce. There were two leading schools of of rabbinical thought, Shemaiah and Hillel. And they had different opinions on what the grounds for divorce were. Uh, Rabbi uh, Shemaiah believed that you could divorce your wife if she burned the beans. Literally, for any reason. I'm dead serious. That is actually a quote in there in the the, uh, uh, Jewish historical writings. But Rabbi Hillel, or vice versa, excuse me, that's exactly the opposite. But Shemai said, no, 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 you can only divorce in cases of adultery. So they asked Jesus, what do you have to say? Jesus said, first of all, divorce was never intended. God created for a husband to love his wife, for a wife to love her husband. And quite frankly, if we did things the right way, we'd never even have the word divorce. Nevertheless, but for the sinfulness of man, God made an allowance. And here it is primarily. If there's infidelity, then you've got grounds. There's a few other grounds, but basically that's what Jesus was answering in that passage, dealing with a variety of subjects in this uh, Sermon on the Mount. Personal conduct regarding the proper way to handle insults, i.e. a slap across the face. Legal obligations, personal service. Hey, if the soldier tells you to carry his bag a mile, carry it an extra mile. Compassion, almsgiving. The Pharisees were notorious for almsgiving. In fact, they would go to the street corner and blow a trumpet. They said it was so that the poor would know that it's time to come and get their hand out. The real reason, according to Jesus, they were blowing the trumpet is so the newspapers could show up and write a nice story about what a bunch of generous, generous, wonderful people these Pharisees were. Prayer. Don't pray your prayers to be heard of men, but pray like this. And Jesus gives us a model prayer. Fasting. Don't fast for the purpose of making everybody think that you are ultra pious or ultra holy. But when you, when you do choose to fast, make sure it's done in such a way that nobody else knows about it. Material blessings and charity, where your heart is. And then he addressed the inclination to worry, which we'll probably come back on and dig into at a later time. But now we are, we're, we're, we're segueing out of that in chapter 6 into this new discussion in chapter 7 on the subject of judgment. Why? Well, we remember why. The Pharisees were experts in being judgmental. They loved to critique and judge other people while excusing and justifying their own behavior. In fact, they held them themselves up as the models of righteousness. Oh, you want a definition of holiness? Here, take a look at me. Oh, you want to know what it means to be holy? Oh, here's my picture. Let me post that to you. I mean, that is basically how they handled all of this. If you want to know what the right thing, you know, have you ever seen a person that said, hey, what's the ideal? Uh, uh, if you had the ideal Christian, who would it be? And they would take a, a pencil and, and mark, just di- do a diagram outside their shoe and say, that's it. It's perfect. Exactly what I'm doing. Have you met someone like that, folks? We've got them. Every church has them, and every church shouldn't have them. Now, that is the thing that Jesus was addressing. Jesus was addressing the hypocrisy. Remember, righteousness is always the goal, but not self-righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, liberals, as they look at Matthew chapter 7, just read the first verse. And they conclude that we should never judge. Was well, that what the Bible's saying? Absolutely not. In fact, the Bible is full of judgment, beginning with the fall in Genesis 3, where God judged disobedient behavior by Adam and Eve, and ending with the great white throne of judgment in Revelation chapter 21. The Bible is full of judgment. As a matter of fact, in the account of creation given in Genesis 1 and 2, as God saw that the work that he had done was very good, that is, in fact, judgment. In Revelation 22, there is a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. To make that distinction, you have to use judgment. 
The Bible commands us to use judgment. The Bible establishes the place and purpose of civil government and the accompanying judgment which they hold. The Bible establishes how judgment is to be used to handle disputes between believers within the assembly. The Bible establishes judgment for behavior within the local church body itself. The Bible establishes our use of judgment for doctrinal issues being taught. The Bible teaches the judgment of those considered for positions of deacon or pastor. There are standards by which those men should be evaluated. We are to judge our own behavior, it says in 1 Corinthians and also 1 Peter. We are to be able to judge what is right and what is wrong uh, ourselves. That is called self-government, 1 Thessalonians 5.22. In fact, this very passage in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, the last verse it tells us that the call to judge those who are swine and don't cast your pearls in front of them. Now, to determine who is someone you're wasting time with giving biblical truth and who is not worth wasting time with takes judgment. So we rightly make judgments all the time. But this passage actually deals more with us than with others. This passage doesn't tell us not to judge. It tells us how to judge righteously. And this morning we're going to cover four brief main points to proper judgment in relationships. Number one, in judgment, give the other person every benefit of the doubt. Now, we find this not specifically mentioned in Matthew, but we see a parallel passage in Luke, which does mention it. And understand, as Jesus, how many of you are old enough to have attended a revival? How many have ever been to a revival meeting? Okay, most evangelists on any given year will have maybe six to ten sermons that they preach over and over and over and over again. Brother Bailey Smith was one of our dear friends who's now in heaven. Uh, Brother Bailey was, uh, came to our church a number of times. Every time Brother Bailey would come here, I'd ask him to preach Wheat and Tares because it was a famous message, and boy, it caused you to, to search your soul and make sure that you were part of the body of Christ. Well, likewise, Jesus probably didn't give that Sermon on the Mount just the one time. As a matter of fact, in Luke, we see an account where he is not on the Mount, but he's down in a plain, and he gives a lot of the same material. So that's what we're, we're, we're referencing here. Um, in Luke 6, we see Jesus preaching to another large group, this time in the plain, about the same subject matter. And he sheds some additional light on what we saw in Matthew. In Luke 6, it says this, "'Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful.'" Judge not, and you shall not be judged. That's exactly what we read in Matthew. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Give, what are we talking about? We're talking about mercy. And it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. All men shall give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. And why do you paying attention to that two-by-four, or to that, or that splinter in your brother's eye, and you don't notice the two-by-four that's in your own eye? Either, either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me help pull that splinter out of your eye when there's a big two-by-four in your own eye. You're being hypocritical. First, take the two-by-four out of your own eye. Now, notice it does say we are to help our brother, but we're supposed to examine ourselves first. Now, if you put this whole line of thought together with what we see there in Luke 6 and what we also saw in Matthew 7, you can bookend this entire subject matter beginning with be full of mercy as your Father is also full of mercy and ending with whatsoever you would do, do, uh, would do have men do to you, so do ye unto them. Basically, the golden rule. Now, this instruction and how we are to deal with other people was actually hammered home in a famous point in American history. Pastor John Robinson, who is the Pilgrim's pastor, before this group from his congregation left Delphus Haven in Holland and began their trip to England and eventually on the Mayflower to the New World, he led them in this, what, what's depicted in this, this painting this, that hangs in the, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the United States Congressional Building. Uh, we see the embarkation of the pilgrims. They've got the Geneva Bible open to the front page. Well, Pastor Robinson gave them a list of directions and instructions for when they got to the New World. And one of the specific instructions he said is this, Be careful to provide peace with all men, what in us lieth, especially with our associates. And for that end, watchfulness must be had that we neither at all in ourselves do give, no, nor easily take offense being given by others. So a good rule of practice within the church is make sure that you don't intentionally offend somebody and don't be easy to take offense. That pretty much covers it all, does it not? 
if we would all remember that as we go about our day-to-day lives, don't intentionally offend someone and don't intentionally be offended. Now, recognize that any time there are more than two people involved in anything, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a family, whether it's a church, whether it's a business, there will be disagreements. We're going to see things differently. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We are going to say something sometimes that's hurtful. It's going to happen. So how are we supposed to respond? Enter Luke chapter 6 again. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father is also merciful. Judge not that ye be not judged. Condemn not, you should be not condemned. Forgive, and it shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Shall all men give unto your bosom? For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Now, I've heard preachers take this passage and reference it to giving money. Well, isn't that about right? Most of the time, that's what so many preachers do. It's always about the money. This isn't talking about money at all in this passage. This is talking about being generous in grace and mercy. And if you went down to the market, you would have, of course, they weren't dressed the way we were. They would have robes. And you would take your robe and you would take the front of it and you could create like a basket right here. And you might go down and you'd buy some beans. Well, if you're purchasing a certain amount of beans, they would take that dry measure, scoop out the beans and dump it into your lot, dump the lot into your lap. And you would be able to carry it here and take it home with you. What the point's being made here is when you're doing the giving... Don't just do a quick scoop through there where you're able to shortchange the person, the amount of beans that's in the dry measure, but scoop it up, shake it down, then add some more into it, shake it down, add some more into it, shake it down, add some more into it till it's running over. Then you take that quantity and you dump it into the lap of the person. The point is, is that use that same measure in Dealing grace with other people. So again, it's not talking about money. Talking about grace, long-suffering, goodwill, forgiveness. How often do we go around looking to be offended? How often do we assume the worst in other people? Let me just ask you. Give you some illustrations. Imagine the deacon was at the door, and as you were leaving, he was shaking people's hands and shaking people's hands, and then he stopped shaking hands and went back into the office before you had gotten to him in line and he had shaken your hands. Well, some people could get offended by that. The point here is give the deacon an extra measure of grace. You have no idea why he cut it short and had to leave. Perhaps his wife was yelling at him to go out and get in the car. Perhaps he had to go to the restroom. Perhaps he just didn't see you. The point is there are a number of plausible explanations that should stop you from being offended and getting mad. Perhaps someone snaps at you. Perhaps your wife snaps at you when you come home. Now, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Our nature says, you've snapped at me. I want to snap back at you. If we use the grace shaken down, doubled up, and overflowing, then, then when your wife snaps at you, Instead of snapping back at her, you say, huh, in your mind, my sweetheart must have really had a bad day today. I wonder how I can make her day better. And rather than responding evil for evil or jab for jab, you respond with grace in this situation. Let me give you another example. Imagine you're driving and someone cuts you off in traffic. What's the general response that you have? You're offended, you're angry, maybe you want to show him there's one way to heaven. (laughs) And think about it, the natural thought is that guy cut me off and he did it on purpose. Really? Have you ever cut somebody off? Did you do it on purpose? Probably not. Usually when you've done something like that, it's because you just simply didn't see the car. And usually when you pull out in front of somebody, you're embarrassed and you wave at them and you feel terrible for pulling out in front of them and you're innocent because you just didn't see the car. However, when someone pulls out in front of you, there is no same grace given. You are just angry and you take it personally that you've, that you've been offended. Folks, 
Give an extra measure of grace. Work overtime to not be offended. Let me just say this. There may be times where you do get offended because the person is trying to offend you. But just as Pastor John Robinson said, don't try to offend other people and don't easily take offense from other people. An old Jewish tradition in the Mishnah dates 120 years before the birth of Christ says this, judge each person with the scales weighted in their favor. In other words, weigh the actions of others with generosity. Give them every benefit of the doubt so as not to take offense. Again, don't be naive. If someone is consistently, obviously offensive to you, then there are other steps that can be taken in Matthew 18 in dealing with a disagreement within the church. And then there are going to be some people that don't listen to this, don't want to hear it. That's uh, where, where Jesus mentioned judging the, casting your pearls before swine. However, the general rule is this. Always give an extra measure of grace to the other person, whether it's your wife in your marriage or to another member of church or to somebody at work or when you're getting on the interstate going to work. Always give an extra measure of grace. Don't be easily offended. Point number two, before judging others, first use the same strict standards of judgment to judge yourself. Now, here's why that's important. Our nature is that we don't judge others with the same latitude that we give ourselves. Example I just gave you a moment ago about driving in traffic. If someone cuts you off, then it's because he's a jerk. But if you cut someone else off, it was simply an accident. This guy doesn't understand. I just didn't see him. So someone is running late for an appointment with you. Well, if they're late when they've got an appointment with you, that's just being rude and insensitive. But if you're running late to an appointment that you have with them, well, it's just because I was too busy, the traffic was bad, certainly they'll understand. So the point is, ladies and gentlemen, we justify our own actions by one set of measurement while, while, while uh, being short with other people with a completely different standard of measurement. We desire forgiveness and understanding for our mistakes, but we offer none for the mistakes of others. We desire understanding for moments of foolishness, yet we refuse to offer that same understanding to others. Consider David as an example. Everybody knows this story of David. At the height of his reign, when everything was going great, David, when kings were out leading their forces in battle, David was at home relaxing in his beautiful home. And it tells us that in the cool of the day, he gazed over the edge of the roof of his house. And understand, this is not unusual. In this day and age, they didn't have air conditioning. The top floor of a home would be like a patio. That's where you could enjoy the breeze. And if you've ever heard of uptown and downtown in these cities, and you've seen, the, you've seen the Jerusalem, it's sloped like this. And literally, the high-rent neighborhoods were on top of the hill, and the lower-rent neighborhoods were on the bottom of the hill. Why? Because you know what runs downhill. That's the legitimate reason. So as king, he would have had his house high up in the city. He would have been on top of the patio, and he happened to notice Bathsheba taking a bath, which was not unusual. Again, the cool of the day, on the roof, not many people could see over, only the king, and he notices Bathsheba. And of course, David knew who Bathsheba was. He knew that uh, it was Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of his mighty men of valor. It's like one of David's personal security team and, and special forces. But David saw Bathsheba, lusted after her, sent for her, slept with her. Then when he found out that she was pregnant, David went to great lengths to cover up what he had done. He asked Uriah to come home from the front, offered Uriah a few days at home with his wife, hoping that they would enjoy the blessings of marital intimacy, and then David would be able to use that as a plausible excuse, and no harm, no foul. But Uriah turned out to be a more honorable man than David. David or Uriah would not, uh, would not enjoy the blessings of his wife knowing that his fellow soldiers, his buddies, were out on the front lines right there. David did everything he could to get Uriah to break down, but he wouldn't do it. So ultimately, what did David do? He executed Uriah. But David didn't actually lift the sword himself. He wrote an order out to take back to the commanders at the front line and said, take Uriah up to the hottest plate in the front line in the battle and then pull back and leave Uriah all by himself where he's going to be killed. And that's what they did. And Uriah wound up being killed. Do you know that there were several months that went on as Bathsheba's pregnancy continued to grow and as she was preparing to deliver 
And David was living life with a clean conscience. David was enjoying himself. He had excused every action that he had done, which included adultery, fornication, and murder. But he had justified it all in his own mind. Ladies and gentlemen, recognize this. If David can do that, every one of us, if you give us enough time, we're all capable of justifying just about any behavior that we want to justify. And it didn't take, it was not until Pastor Nathaniel, uh, or Nathan, uh, the, the priest, or the, the prophet, came to see David. And objectively, he said, David, I need your help in judgment. And then Nathan went into this story. So Nathan, there was a rich man that had a whole bunch of, of sheep. And he had a neighbor that only had one. And this neighbor, he was so close to sheep, he was like a pet. In fact, he kept the sheep inside, even let that sheep come up and, and sit there at the, at the foot of the table when they're having dinner. And you know, this rich man had company come over unexpectedly. And rather than taking one from his flock of many, he went next door and took that one man's lamb, and he had that prepared for his supper that night. David, what do you think should be done about this? Well, David, objectively evaluating these just generic individuals, actually carried out the law accurately. And under the law, the penalty was to repay the debt four times. If you stole something and you were caught, you didn't go to jail, you paid it back four times what it was worth. So that's what David judged. And of course, at that point in time, Nathaniel then pointed his finger at David and said, David, you are that man. Now the point is here is recognize that we will go to great lengths to justifying our own actions. Well, use that same standard. Use the standard that you're going to use on other people. First, use that on yourself. Let me give you some practical illustrations on how this works. And I'll use something that's very important to all of us. Let's talk about the marital relationships. We all become experts, if we're not careful, on the shortcomings of our spouses. And we're happy to tell them Areas in the Bible that they're not living up to what God says they should do. Yet, shockingly, our spouses don't jump for joy over our criticism. And much to our surprise, upon the first critique, the first thing that happens with any of us when we're being attacked is a wall of defense goes up. And amazingly, our spouses don't recognize that we're just trying to help them out by pointing out their shortcomings. And instead, they respond in kind with critiques of our behavior. Then one after the other, we fire salvo after salvo back and forth at each other. Voices escalate and the argument ensues. And if this continues, you get to a point where the husband doesn't want to come home at night because the old battle axe is just going to nag him once again. While at the same time, the wife doesn't want that deadbeat husband to come home anyway. The home becomes World War III. Your children are caught in the middle and home is not a safe place so that they can find acceptance there. Instead, your children hate being at home and they have to look for family and acceptance somewhere else so they turn to drugs or gangs or one-night stands. You see how this works. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen closely. You cannot change your husband. That's the point of this message. You can shake your finger until it falls off You can nag until he dreads coming home, and you won't change him. You'll only drive a wedge deeper between the two of you. And men, you can't change your wife, and you can't try to fix your wife, which is what we men always try to do. We're wanting to fix things, and you cannot do that. And how many times have I been in my office counseling a couple that's having marriage problems, and she'll say to me, well, I wanted to marry him. I I just knew that I could change him. If you're not happy with spending the rest of your life with a person that just proposed to you, don't think you're going to change them because it's not going to happen. Now, while you can't change them, there is one who can change them. You can't change your spouse, but the Holy Spirit can change your spouse. And here's the instruction how it's given to us. So ladies, before criticizing your husband, first turn that microscope around and put it on you. And examine yourself with the same standard that you were intending to examine him with. Don't judge, lest ye first be judged. And with what standard you're going to use to measure your husband, first use that to measure yourself. 
So, ladies, before you start critiquing your husband and his shortcomings as, as husbands, do you have a meek and gentle spirit, as the Bible asks? Is your inner beauty exceed your outer beauty? Do you have the respect, the office that, or do you respect the office that God has entrusted unto your husband? Are you a complement or a completer to your husband? Do you love your husband and your children? Are you self-controlled and pure? Do you want to take good care of your home? Are you perhaps cold and unresponsive in areas of intimacy? Are you protecting your husband's heart? Which is one of those beautiful things I think the scripture has to say about the wife's responsibility to the husband. As you look in Proverbs 31, it talks about these characteristics of the ideal woman. It says here in verse 11, The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Imagine a husband taking his heart, and rather than putting it into a safe deposit box at the bank vault, he is taking his heart and entrusting it to his wife. That's the image that's here. He has no fear of harm. And husbands, let me ask you this. Well, before you decide to critique your wife, use the same method and first take a long look at yourself, husbands, and hold yourself to the same standards of perfection that you intend to hold your wife to. So husbands, before you begin evaluating your wife to critique her, and it's actually just because you love her, you're just wanting her to be all that God wants her to be, of course. But do you love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it? Now consider that, men. How much did Christ love the church? He loved us enough that he went to the cross and gave his life for us. That's the standard that we're supposed to have in demonstrating our love for our wives. Can she cast her cares upon you because you care for her as we can with Jesus? Or is she afraid you'll bite her head off if she comes to you with something? Can she come to you for aid and comfort in times of trial? Is she secure in your unconditional love? Are you long-suffering and kind with her husbands or do you misbehave? Husbands, are you easily provoked to anger? Or is she secure in your protection and in your provision? Is she confident that you will never leave her nor forsake her? Point number three, apply God's counsel to yourself. And folks, let me say this. We need to be more aware of calling our own selves to repentance than we are on calling others to repentance. It begins with us. So number one, give every person the benefit of the doubt. Number two, before judging others, use the same strict standards of judgment on yourself. And then number three, apply God's counsel to yourself. Rather than pronouncing judgment on your spouse, you gaze into God's word on a daily basis and you you evaluate your own behavior in light of what God expects. Then you allow the Holy Spirit to convict you through the power of the Holy Spirit to transform you into the husband or the wife that God wants you to be. You see how this works? And I probably have not done a good job of explaining this, but rather than you being the expert in critiquing the other person, Since you can't change them, but the Holy Spirit can, here's God's strategy for the husband and for the wife. Husband, you get in the Bible. You search the Scripture. You pray daily. You walk with God daily so that God will show you areas in your life that you need to change and bring in accordance to His will. While at the same time, your wife is walking with the Lord daily, searching the Scripture daily, looking for instruction that she needs to apply in her life in accordance to God's will. At the end of the day, that wife's going to have nothing to complain about because that husband who's so closely walking with Jesus day by day, letting the Holy Spirit mold him, she is going to wind up having the best husband in the whole wide world because he's trying to glorify the Lord. While simultaneously at the same time, she is walking day by day, closely hand in hand with the Lord Jesus, searching the scripture for things that she should do to make herself more pleasing to the Lord. And consequently, the husband has the greatest wife in the whole wide world. So he's got nothing to complain about. He's got the greatest wife because she is letting the Holy Spirit convict her. She's got nothing to complain about because he's walking closely with the Lord day by day and he's letting the Holy Spirit convict him. No one's having to shake a finger in the other one's face saying do better. Both 
are God's gift to each other. And that's what God's design is with Matthew 7. And quite frankly, your closest neighbor is who you share your home with. So why all of these in practice can be applied and should be applied with other members of the body of Christ. We should be patient. We should give them every benefit of the doubt, extra measure of grace, all this. But at the same time, it's most necessary in your home. Because we may be going to church to each other as neighbors, but you're living with your spouse. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a secret to a happy marriage. And quite frankly, it's God's design. If we all were committed to living our lives in a close relationship with the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit to convict us, then each one of us would bring glory to God ultimately. And then it's not bickering or fighting or correction or anything like that. It's, Lord, what would you have me to do? Now, here's the thing. That's the simplicity of the truth that I've tried to explain this morning. But now here's what we've got to do. We simply have to put it into practice. We'll close with this passage from Philippians chapter 4, where Paul is writing from jail, and he says this, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord. In fact, I beg two ladies in the church, Eodius and Suntake, are, are, are at odds with each other. I, I hope they get it worked out quickly in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, rejoice. Let your manner of living be an example unto all men, because the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, remember all the blessings that God has given. Let your new requests be made known to God. And then trust in Him. Let the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts, just like that safe deposit box, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, this is the secret, do put into practice, and the God of peace shall be with you. Folks, I guess the point is this. We, growing up in the American church, and quite frankly, they were guilty of it as well, so I can't say it's just the American church, we are experts at critiquing other people. In fact, isn't that what America is built on? We've got movie critics and sports critics and everybody's an expert talking about others. God's design is for us to take that standard that we use on others, reverse it, and apply it to us. Let the Holy Spirit convict us. Let the Holy Spirit mold us. And we, in obedience to God, will get that two-by-four out of place. And then, yeah, we will be able to help our brother and sister. But if each and every one of us, rather than analyzing you, will let the Holy Spirit analyze and convict us, that's how relationships work the best. That's how the body of Christ is designed. And that's how the home is to be designed. And even though you may have knowledge of all of this, unless you actually put it into practice, it won't work. It's like having the, the, the fastest car in the, in the, the city... But if you never take it out of the garage, you'll never be able to enjoy it. You may know all of these great spiritual truths, but the key is actually obedience, putting them into practice.